Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the World War Nation podcast with myself, World War II explorer, Lawrence Waller. Join me on a journey of discovery into the past and present as we set out to explore the history of the Second World War. Our travels will take us from the home front to the battlefields of Europe and beyond. Travel with us as we revisit historical locations and walk the battlefields of World War II. We'll be tracking down wartime artefacts, speaking with veterans and historians alike, and paying our deepest respects to this remarkable generation, as we set out to try and help keep this period of history alive for future generations to learn from, and to try and tell the personal stories of those who bore witness to these monumental world events. It's going to be a long journey. In fact, it's going to be a lifelong journey, and I want you to join me on what will be a great adventure. If you wish to help support the World War II Nation podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash worldwar2nationhq, or support us at Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash worldwar2nation. The links for both of these are also in the podcast bio below. Thank you very much for your support. In this episode, we return to the concluding part of our discussion with historian Adam Berry about Troop Carrier Command's experiences in the ETO during the war. We also look at the reality of live combat jumps versus training exercises, and we talk specifically about the training accident in Exercise Eagle as part of this large dress rehearsal for the invasion. We look at the likes of Operation Mark Garden, Operation Varsity, and the experiences of the C-46. So there's plenty of things that will be coming up in this episode. Without further ado, we're diving right back into the thick of it all with the drop over Normandy for D-Day. Well, let's go on to Normandy and the, the wider operation, the wider drop. I mean, obviously, myself and I'm sure many others uh, grew up on seeing Band of Brothers, you know, coming out on the BBC, uh, was it 2000, 2001 time. Um, I obviously yeah. can remember Day of Days episode, the, the infamous cloud bank and the portrayal of, uh, you know, what happened there with either pilots going above or below and then et cetera, et cetera. So you talk us through the reality of what happens on both flanks and the experiences of those men that were flying the aircraft. And I suppose also, you know, the paratroopers involved in it as well. Yeah. So from, um, from a nine troop carrier command perspective, they're obviously briefed a number of days before D-Day. Of course, the mission was postponed for 24 hours. So um, they'd been, they'd been briefed in some cases as early as the second, um, you know, the senior officers obviously before that, but um at no point in the briefing were they informed about um, a a cloud bank uh, that, or that anywhere on the course they would encounter encounter um, thick cloud. Um, the the course the American serials took to drop the paratroopers on D Day was a bit of a dogleg. It, it crossed the south coast of England, and uh, and and I like to call it, it came through, came in through the back door. It flew round. Um, between the islands of, of Guernsey and Oldney and crossed the, the Cotentin Peninsula on the west coast. Um, so it was, they were flying west to east across the peninsula to drop the American paratroopers on D-Day. Um, and when they crossed the west coast of the peninsula, they were all of a sudden hit by this, this, um, this extremely dense cloud bank. Uh, a pilot by the name of Julian Rice, who was 316th Troop Carrier Group, referred to it as a wall of fog. And depending on which groups, um, sort of post-mission intel you read, um, it was anywhere between sort of 500 foot from the deck up to about two and a half thousand feet. So it, it, it presented a, a dilemma to the pilots. And 
because they weren't expecting it and therefore the 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 course hadn't been altered to address the fact that there was a uh, a cloud bank they were kind of forced into making a very quick snap decision about what to do and they were quite simply pre- pre- presented with three options the the the, thir- the first and and I would guess more obvious one would be just to kind of stick it out and hope that when when it when the cloud dispersed they were still sort of in relative flying relatively in the right direction which of course they, they you know they could do using compass bearings and things like that but you know if it made a slight error at one of the ips it could you know could significantly affect the way that they were um the direction in which they were flying um the issue with flying through the cloud is that of course it, it significantly increases the, the risk of aircraft colliding in flight so the the troop carrier groups were taught um, to fan out the formations so that they essentially increased the spacing between the aircraft so that they could minimise the um, the risk of them colliding in midair. And this was a this was a huge risk. I mean, there was a really really serious um, collision um, during Oper- Exercise Eagle, which was the, the biggest, the, the large scale um, dress rehearsal for D-Day over England. Two aircraft of the three sixteenth troop carrier group collided. Um, over Cambridgeshire on the on the return leg, and um, the occupants of both aircraft were all killed, including a squadron CO and um, an airborne company commander. So they were very much aware of what the consequences of an aerial collision could be. Um, C forty sevens at the time, um, as the Americans used them anyway, had formation lights on them that could only be viewed when they were viewed from the right angle, from the right position. So when you were bang on in terms of spacing to the aircraft that you were flying on the wing of, you could see its formation lights. Um, in the cloud, that goes out the window completely. You lose you know, all visual on that aircraft, um, which is obviously a big concern because the aircrew have got to consider more than just their own lives. They've got to consider at that point that they have got um, you know, 15, 16, 17, in some cases 18 or 19, uh, combat ready, highly trained paratroopers sat in the cabin of their aircraft. Um, and it, there's, you know, no point then maintaining a formation through the cloud, having three or four aircraft collide with one another and losing the better part of 80 or 90 paratroopers in the process. So they had no choice if by flying through the cloud to break up a formation. Um, the difficulty again that that brings is that they were ordered to maintain radio silence until the drops had taken place so if one pilot consciously made the decision to continue flying through the cloud couldn't tell the other aircraft in his formation that that's what he was doing so some guys decided to do one thing whilst others decided to do something entirely different and the other two options that they had were to fly below the cloud or fly above it um both obviously give you the the advantage of being able to maintain visual on the aircraft that you're flying alongside um but they both bring big problems in their own right um when you fly below the cloud you very much lose the ability to maintain um visual of ground terrain well ahead of your aircraft which for those aircraft that didn't have navigators or weren't equipped with pathfinder equipment was a big deal because they had to use the landmarks that lay ahead 
and I had to use key terrain features such as rivers or, or flooded areas as a way of knowing where they were. And of course, when you're flying at four or 500 feet off a deck, your, your, your ability to see that far ahead of you is, uh, is significantly affected. And also you become more, more susceptible to ground fire. Um, the other option, of course, was to fly above the cloud, but in some cases that meant two and a half, three thousand feet. So it's all cushiony for them up until the point where the cloud bank disperses and they realize that the drop zone is a mile in front of them. Um, now, whilst I don't, well, whether or not you see it as um, as an endorsement of a, of a rival podcast, when I was on um, History Hack with Matt Bone a few weeks back, we spoke with Seb Davey, who's a flight lieutenant in the RAF and flies for Dakota with the BBMF. And we were talking about the difficulties of um, slowing an aircraft like the C-47 forward slash Dakota down whilst trying to descend. So from the, from, the point, from the point of view of the aircrew who had flown up to an altitude whereby they could fly above the cloud, all of a sudden the cloud disperses and they see a DZ ahead of them. They've got to get the aircraft down to just over 100 miles an hour in order to drop the paratroopers that are on board whilst descending potentially um, the better part, you know, uh, 1,500 to 1,800 feet. It's an impossible task. Um, they, they, they can't descend without maintain, without gaining airspeed. Um, but they tried their very best, and a lot of their, their um, behaviour um, in, in trying to do so was, was what I believe a lot of the misconceptions that the Airborne gave post-mission um, came from. So an example being the engines on the C-47 um, could be powered up using a, you know, more traditional methods, but also with manifold pressure. And what the um, what the pilots were trained to do was to drop, you know, all essentially all of the throttle back completely, so the engine was idling. Um, but when they're descending, it would create it would cause the propeller to spin it naturally in the wind, and it it creates the same effect that if you're letting a car roll down a hill and you drop it down a couple of gears to use engine braking it makes the engine sound like it's you know being revved to its uh, to its limit and and this very much created the same thing with the aero engines that were on the c47 at the time so by throttling back and allowing the propeller to spin in the wind it made the engine sound like it was really being heavily gunned but what it does is it creates an air brake effect so it actually aids in slowing the aircraft down so that is quite conceivably why a lot of the paratroopers genuinely thought pilots were attempting to throttle forward and increase airspeed on approach to the DZ, when in reality they were feverishly trying to slow the aircraft down. Other things they could do was, were, you know, were more simple things like dropping flaps and also kicking the rudder to, um, to sort of present the, the the side of the aircraft to the wind to create drag and, and, and hope that it had an effect in slowing the aircraft down. But of course, by the time the aircraft reached the drop zone, um, you know, some aircraft will, will, will potentially do in 120, 130 miles an hour, which for a paratrooper is, is bad news because the moment they leave the aircraft, the prop blast is going to be so great, they're going to lose an awful lot of their equipment. So 
um, yeah, it's, there's a lot of what the paratroopers believe to be sort of erratic pilot behaviour that can very easily be explained. Um, in terms of the guys that flew through the cloud, in a lot of cases, it's very simply a case of they came out the other side flying the wrong course or in the wrong place and simply didn't have the time to realise or to recognise where they were. Um, and of course, there are a number of flooded rivers in the area that very that looks very similar to to each other. And you know, it was it was very easy for the pilots to mistake the flooded do, for example, for the flooded murderate, and therefore misdrop his, his paratroop cargo in the wrong area. So the cloud bank is is the catalyst of what causes the misdrops on D Day. It's not pilot training, it's not experience, it's not an inability to fly the aircraft. It's not even really an inability for the navigators to do their job properly. They're faced with an event or, you know, a, an issue that they are given no time in the biggest airborne operation to date in history to make a very, very quick decision about what to do. And of course, the results are that that the paratroopers were, were scattered, uh, in some cases, 20 miles from the drop zone. Um, for those that flew below the cloud, as, as I say, the issue is, of course, not being able to see the terrain features up ahead. Um, but it also means they've then got to um, gain height on approach to the drop zone, which again means applying power to the aircraft, which gives the paratroopers on board the perception of the air crew is attempting to uh, gain speed in order to, as the paratroopers often refer to it as, get the hell out of there, self-preservation type stuff, which again is, you know, it's easily explainable. You mentioned Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers is actually pretty good in terms of its accuracy and the way that the pilots behaved. But it does, again, the rhetoric, the way that the, the characters talk is almost suggestive of uh, troop carrier failure to do their job properly. But actually, um, even though that, you know, Dick Winter's stick was significantly misdropped, it was dropped, I think, eight or nine miles from the correct drop zone, just on the western edges of St. Mary Gleese, which was miles away from their correct DZ. Um, in terms of what Band of Brothers shows of them dropping below the cloud and having to gain height for the drop, you know, all of that side of things is, is pretty accurate. But the, the, the pilots were not, you know, the pilots weren't doing something erroneous by gaining altitude for the drop in, and, and possibly at the same time gaining some airspeed. Because if they hadn't, they'd have dropped a load of paratroopers whose parachutes wouldn't have deployed before they hit the ground. So, um, again, it, you know, it, it, it just goes some way to emphasising that there are very logical explanations for a lot of what the paratroopers perceived to be erratic behaviour from a pilot's point of views. Um, and it's very, very easy for a paratrooper to be critical of the pilots when they've been dropped two or three miles from the drop zone and the result of it is their friends are killed or they miss out on, you know, trying to seize their objective. I think it's a really interesting analysis there of of what, what happened and why it happened. And also an illustration, I suppose, of that, that famous acronym. You know, 
you know, no no plans for his first contact with the enemy. And obviously this enemy was the case of the environment, um, the elements. And you made a really interesting point to me when we spoke a couple of weeks ago on the phone about the reality of a live combat jump and the reality of a training jump and the significant differences between what the guys are trained for from a troop carry command perspective and obviously the paratroopers perspective that are involved in those training uh, training jumps in the uk to then the reality on d-day and by what i mean by there is you probably know what i'm getting at is the fact yeah. that these guys were heavily overloaded more so than they ever were during a training operation because they know they've got to take everything there with them and what they've got of them yeah the sole things they need and the only things they're going to be jumping in with whereas obviously on the training mission they know they're getting off at the end of the day they're going home they're going back to their billets no problems yeah absolutely i mean it's it's i'm glad you brought it up because on, on matt's podcast a couple of weeks ago we didn't really touch on it but yeah um the, the C-47, although it's cargo aircraft, it's, it's only got a £6,000 payload, um, you know, pay, payload capacity. So that is, you know, a huge portion of that is taken up by the personnel on board on, on its own. You've also got to consider that the, the aircraft were also carrying um, padded drop containers on para racks underneath the belly of the aircraft. Con- and they contained, you know, heavy equipment that, you know, you, you couldn't possibly ask an individual to jump, you know, tied to his leg or friction tapes to the side of his leg, for example, machine guns, mortars, mortar, mortar base plates, ammunition, medical supplies, um, you know, comms gear, heavy, heavy stuff. And some aircraft were carrying seven, 800 pounds worth of equipment in the bundles under the aircraft. So as you say, during a lot of the training exercises in the UK, and there, you know, there are pictures of the guys preparing for these missions. And it, it's not just with the Americans, it's also with the Brits is that they are carrying very, very little in terms of equipment. And of course, there are reasons for this. You know, they're not expected to survive in a fight for three days, which is what the Americans were, were told they would need to be able to do. You know, they, they were expected to be able to be self-sustainable for at least three days of combat. I'm not sure whether or not the British received a similar order over in the, um, over in the Sword Beach area, but the Americans, like I say, were had to carry enough equipment to be self-sustainable for at least three days. Um, in a combat mission, they've sorry, an exercise, they've not got that consideration. But at the same time, they have got a, the consideration of they can't afford for 30, 40, 50, 60 guys to be getting broken ankles, twisted ankles, twisted knees, you know, broken hips, because they, they're jumping in exercises carrying silly amounts of weight. So generally speaking, for most of the exercises in the UK, the pilots are flying with paratroopers whose only real weight or the bulk of their weight is their personal weapon and their parachute. Now on D-Day, some American paratroopers, particularly from the 101st Airborne Division, which is an interesting topic in itself, were carrying upwards of 100 pounds of equipment on them. And bearing in mind that some of these guys only weighed 130, 140 pounds themselves. They were carrying, a cent, you know, essentially they had another small human being strapped to their bodies when they jumped out of the aircraft. And the one engine first adopted the use of the British leg bag, which increased the, the weight of one engine first airborne division sticks in particular. And it's an, interesting, it's an interesting thing to study, actually, because obviously the 82nd were an experienced division. 
But on D-Day, they only had, of the three parachute regiments that dropped, only one of them had jumped, jumped in combat before. But when you look at morning reports and you look at the operation journals for the, um, the training that the 82nd carried out prior to D-Day, there's an awful lot of inter-regiment training. So guys from the 505th who had jumped over Sicily and jumped over Italy had gone to the 507 and the 508th and done practice drops with them. And you see in the 82nd a distinct lack of gear compared to the 101st. Now, is that the experience of the 505th in what they experienced over Sicily and Italy being, being spread across the other two regiments? And they've, they've sort of used their, their, their experience to say, guys, don't overload yourselves for this mission. Take the minimum of what is needed. Trust in your training. Trust in your ability to use the minimum of what you've got to do the jobs you've been assigned to. So, and, and, and the odd thing is, is that the 82nd out of the two airborne divisions was the better dropped of the two divisions. The 101st were a significantly more scattered division. And the vast majority of post-war criticism of troop carrier performances, oddly enough, comes from veterans of the 101st. So is there parallels to be drawn there in terms of, you know, the, the weight that these guys were carrying and the success of their drops on D-Day. So like you rightly pointed out, guys that were, the air crew were training with paratroopers on board their aircraft that were nothing in terms of the weight they were carrying on D-Day. And then all of a sudden, they've got aircraft that are so heavily overloaded, they're taking another half a mile to get off a runway at their base airfields. And because they're so heavily overloaded, the stall speed of the aircraft is significantly increased, which means the jump speed is increased for the paratroopers on board. And again, Seb, you know, Seb Davy, who, as I say, mentioned, um, I mentioned earlier, flies the Dakota for the BBNF, has experience in dropping paratroopers from a Dakota, as well as from modern day um, air transport aircraft, the C-130, the A-400. And, you know, he testified to there being a significant, you can, you can really notice when the cargo has left the cargo door of a C-47. The difference in the way the aircraft performs, you know, the way it handles everything is significantly changed once the paratroopers have jumped. So it's another big consideration in terms of the misdrops on D-Day and the high jump speeds being reported by the 101st. It's really simple. The pilots had no choice. If they dropped the aircraft down speed-wise, to the speeds they were jumping at in training exercises, the aircraft would have fallen out of the sky. And if that had happened, obviously, with paratrooper cargo on board, the loss of life is, is significant. We talked there about the sort of the personal accounts, um, testimonies left by 101st and 82nd guys that jumped into Normandy. Obviously, you were very close uh, with Corporal George Schenkels, the 82nd Airborne. What was his experiences like for the drop in Normandy and his his thoughts on troop carry command. George, George never had, I mean, he never had a bad word to say about nine troop carry command in fairness to him. And George was quite an outspoken individual. If he, you know, if he really had strong opinions on it, he'd let me know. Um, he had strong opinions of glider infantry, but that's a different, that's a different story. <laughs> um, he, um, he had an all right drop, actually. He wasn't dropped too far from his, 
from his drop zone. And in actual fact, he was dropped. He was dropped outside his drop zone, but he was dropped nearer to his objective. So he he really had no complaints. Uh, he had a pretty decent landing. His stick um, found each other pretty quickly. Um, he did say he jumped with too much equipment, though. He, that was one of the things he did say. And in actual fact, one of his biggest regrets was that when he was at the airfield, George was this sort of guy. When he was at the airfield, he um, the, the guys were were standing in huge queues to get you know to be issued things like invasion money and um, packs of cigarettes and rations and stuff like that to, to squeeze into their pockets and their equipment. And it, when he when he got to the back of the um, when he got to the point of he was never as far as I can remember he was never a smoker, so he never wanted. He was never bothered about being issued cigarettes beyond being able to use them as a bargaining tool for getting something else off somebody else, if you know what I mean. Um, but he, he came across a cardboard box about a foot by foot in size full of Lucky Strike cigarettes. And he thought to himself, I'm going to have that because I can use it as a way. I can sell them to other members of the regiment or the battalion when we're in Normandy. Or alternatively, I can use them to trade for other things that I need. So believe it or not, he actually friction taped this box of Lucky Strike cigarettes to the side of his leg and jumped over the Normandy countryside with this box of cigarettes taped to the side of his leg. And he actually said that that was the one regret he had because when he jumped out the door, of course, the, the, the flat face of this box of cigarettes just caught the prop blast and just... He said trying to keep his, uh, even when, they, when he was descending under his chute, trying to keep his legs tightly together, which of course they were trained to do, was, was very difficult. And he was worried that when he landed, he was going to you know, injure himself. Um, so he said the first thing that he did when, when he landed, he landed in the field, in, he landed in a pasture just behind a farm between the village of Pickowville and his objective, which was Hill 30, which is um, west of the Murdero River. And he said the first thing he did was he cut this box of cigarettes off his leg and he dumped it in a ditch at the base of a hedgerow. And then he, he took his parachute off and he moved, you know, in the direction of uh, the aircraft's travel, which he was taught to do, to round up the stick. And um, they then decided what to do from that point forward. But that was really all he had to say about his drop, was that his, his most vivid memory was having this big box of cigarettes strapped to the side of his leg. <laughs> and you'd think there'd be something a bit more interesting than that, but that was that was George. So, what happened? Let's let's focus on later operations during the war uh, involving Troop Carry Command. You mentioned obviously Operation Goon, uh, Operation Mark Garden, and obviously keen to talk about sort of the resupply missions of the Battle of the Bulge uh, as well. Can you sort of talk us through how things develop and how these operations go for Troop Carry Command, and I suppose were further lessons learned following norm the operation yeah i mean the, the, a number of interesting things actually happen the most significant is that there's a conscious decision made not to do a nighttime drop again so you don't see a major airborne operation take place at night again for the duration of the war um other than obviously you know covert stuff um so that's a, one of the big significant changes um in august 44, both the American Airborne Divisions had conferences to discuss the um, to discuss the drops and what they could change. And 
there were changes to the procedures that the pathfinders used for example they were on the ground for short for a short period of time before the main serials came over for it, as an example um, they learned to set up their equipment much quicker um, but it brings me on to something I actually I actually really wanted to bring up in 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 the conversation which again is is often quoted as a as a as a sort of major criticism of troop carrier pilots but is in my opinion very much misinterpreted so if we jump forward to september 44 um there are a number of as, as, as i'm sure you're well aware a number of major airborne missions cancelled because they the drop zones were overrun by the ground forces before the paratroopers even got got in the air really um i'm thinking comet linnet those those for example um just prior to to market garden becoming a a reality and during one of these um training missions uh, sort of training missions um cancelled exercises um the airborne were the american air, the 82nd airborne in particular were on the airfields and had been fully briefed on what was to come so as far as they were concerned it was a genuine combat operation um and there was a man by the name of um uh, Louis Gonzalez Mendez, who was a battalion commander in the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment, and he had a very interesting D-Day, um, which I'll come on to. But um, skipping forward again, like I say, to September 44, he was um, he was in a briefing in um, in one of the briefing huts at the airfield that his his battalion would fly for fly from for this mission. And I don't know who recorded it or how it was recorded. But he was in there with a number of other senior officers and obviously high-ranking officers of the troop carrier groups. And a quote's been recorded into history that he came out with um, that I'll read to you now, if that's okay. And, um, and I'll explain why I've brought it up. But he said, gentlemen, my officers know this map of Holland, the drop zones by heart, and we're ready to go. When I brought my battalion to the briefing prior to Normandy, I had the finest combat-ready force of its size that will ever be known. By the time I gathered them together in Normandy, half were gone. I charge you, put us down in Holland, or put us down in hell, but put us down together, or I will hound you to your graves. So, quite heavy stuff. Um, and it's often considered to be a sort of direct criticism of troop carrier command and in particular the pilots um however if you if we if we jump forward into um well back in time a little bit more to august 44 the 82nd airborne division had a, a major conference at a place called glebe mount which is um in leicester on london road in leicester which was the personal quarters of matthew ridgeway and um after he became 18th airborne corps co um it became the personal quarters of um the uh, the uh, infamous James Gavin. They had a they had a conference there in which um, all sort of subunit commanders from a certain rank upwards were invited to attend and essentially relive their experiences of D Day and what they would do to um, excuse me to change um, the way that airborne missions are carried out from that point forward. Now. At that, Louis, Louis Mendez was one of the guys that was present at that conference and he had every opportunity at that point to be very, very critical of Nine Troop Carrier Command. And he wasn't. In fact, he said very little. 
Now, what's interesting about Mendes is the reason why his story is so uh, written about and, and, and in terms of 82nd history so popular is because he was, he was essentially missing for three days. It took him three days to find his way back to his battalion and to his regiment and obviously to their objectives after being misdropped in Normandy. And the reason was he was dropped the wrong side of the flooded Douve River in Normandy. But he was misdropped three quarters of a mile from the regiment's drop zone. That's it. But the difference between being dropped the right side of, of a flooded river and the wrong side was the difference between him wandering around the countryside for three days trying to find his unit and him being in the right place straight away and being able to head to his objectives. Now, three quarters of a mile, it takes a C-47 anywhere between 15 and 20 seconds to cover that sort of distance. 12 seconds is what it takes for a stick to deploy, a well-trained stick to deploy from an aircraft. So I mentioned that purely because it gives you an idea of how short a period of time that is and the differences that that can make for an individual in such a short period of time. Now, when he made that comment at the airfield prior to, um, well, as it, as it transpires from the quote, prior to flying off a market garden. I don't think he was being critical of troop carrier pilots. I think he was being critical of the way that it was planned and the way that their preparations weren't put in place to make sure that regardless of what it meant in terms of their objective, his battalion or his regiment were dropped somewhere where they were all together. Now this carries forward to the issue of the 1st Airborne Division and their drop zones for Arnhem, which is obviously something that is brought up a lot when we talk about Market Garden and the fact that they were dropped, what was it, I think it was eight or nine either kilometres or miles from their main objective, which of course was the, um, the bridge at Arnhem. Now the reasons, obviously, that that decision was made by Lieutenant General Lewis Brereton was because he wanted to drop the 1st Airborne Division somewhere where he could be sure they would get down on the ground as a fighting force and have the ability to move on their objective as a fighting force and not spend the first day or two days trying to find one another or dealing with hundreds of wounded men or in jump-injured men. And I think that that's what the, you know, I, I think that the, the Mendes comment has, has been misinterpreted over the years. He was just concerned really about his battalion being dropped somewhere or in such a way that he didn't have to then spend three days trying to find the rest of his men. And as I say, the conference they had in August 44, he had every opportunity to criticise troop carrier pilots and he, he didn't say a word other than his personal experiences on, uh, on D-Day itself. And how did the operation, you mentioned there, obviously Market Garden, how did Operation Market Garden unfold in terms of the drop itself um, for Troop Carrier Command? The, the, the paradrops went really well, um, particularly with the 1st Airborne Division. They went really, well, really, really well. So for those who, who aren't overly familiar, um, the, the 9 Troop Carrier Command dropped virtually every 
um, parachute element of the first airborne division. The only paratroop element that didn't jump from American aircraft for Market Garden was the, the 21st Independent Parachute Company, who I believe were acting as a, as a pathfinder unit for Market Garden. But, it, but, but the parachute battalions were deployed by American aircraft and, and generally speaking, very successfully. The Americans too dropped re, you know, really successfully. A daylight mission, um, again, you see it in Band of Brothers in a lot of cases, they were dropped onto like, you know, freshly plowed fields, nice soft landing sites, you know, really well considered drop zones. The issues came when the gliders started coming in in the days following, because obviously the Germans were well alert and flak was pretty intense. Um, there was one serial in particular of aircraft that were towing gliders uh, containing um, uh, field artillery for the 82nd Airborne Division. And essentially one half of the entire serial landed in Germany across the border. And of course, you know, the, the result of that was that there was um, a significant number of personnel either killed or captured the moment they left the glider, basically. But um, but yeah, generally speaking, the drops on Market Garden were, were very successful. It was a very costly mission in terms of aircraft lost. I guess that this is a a, um, a side effect of doing it, uh, carrying out a daylight mission. Is that from a from a flak gunner's point of view, your targets are easily, you know, much more easily identifiable. I think that's a really good point. That was one of the points I was going on to next. Was obviously the the, the drawback, the double edged sword, isn't there? That uh, improvement in accuracy, being able to see see your drop zone very clearly from a distance, in theory. Uh, obviously works the advantage of the enemy on the flip side of that as well. And I think you see that with Varsity, don't you? The intensity of flak uh, that the yeah. troop carrier commands that encountered, certainly around Verzal, etc., was uh, very intense over the drop zones. March 1945, uh, Operation Varsity, jumping across the Rhine. Can you talk us through that operation and obviously the use of the C-46 as well? The C-46 is an interesting plane because... It presents itself really, really, really well for an airborne mission. It's significantly larger in size than the C-47. Um, it's also much faster. It could, believe it or not, it could fly quicker on one engine than a C-47 could on two. Um, and it was actually designed to be a four-engine aircraft, but the advance, advances in, avia, in aero engine technology meant that it could get the same sort of power out of two engines than it could out of four. So... Um, they decided to make it a twin-engine aircraft, but it, it had a bigger wingspan than a B-17. So it was a it was a big plane, and if you've ever seen pictures of them on the deck, um, they they tower above a C-47. You know, anyone that stood below the nose of a C-46, but you know they're, they're dwarfed by it basically. One of the really unique features of it, which was, you know, in terms of, of, of airborne deployment, a really cool feature was but it had twin jump doors. So it had a jump door on either side of the fuselage, which meant that you could get essentially the same number of men that you could get in one C-47 stick down either side of the fuselage in a C-46, but deploy them over the same sort of distance. They could deploy in the same sort of time that they could from a C-47. So in a C-46, you could easily have sticks of, of, of 30 plus men. Um, and from a logistical point of view, this was massive for the US Air Force because it meant that they could get, if they could, if they could equip, equip a single troop carrier group with a C-46, that group alone could deploy 
an American parachute infantry regiment, which is circa in the region around two to 2,200 men. Normally, and this was particularly the case around Market Garden and D-Day, it would take two groups to deploy a regiment. So this is important for Varsity because for Varsity, what they want to do is get both the airborne divisions that are involved down on a single day. So they need to minimise airlifts, really. And the C-46 gives them that ability by being able to drop more men. So on paper, it's, it's a really, really good aircraft for, a, for an airborne drop. So the 313th Troop Carrier Group, who, who were really, really experienced group, they'd done Sicily, they'd done Italy, they'd done D-Day, um, they'd done Market Garden, and you know all the bits that come in between. Uh, they were completely re-equipped with the C-46. So they lost all their C-47s, and they were completely re-equipped with C-46, around 80 C-46s, and they were given the task of deploying the 513th Parachute Infantry Regiment over, um, over Germany during Varsity. Um, one of the big drawbacks of a C-46 is that it is a big plane. It's got a great big tail on it, and it's, it's really difficult to take off in a, in a heavy crosswind. And this was emphasised when, when the aircraft were taken off of Varsity. One aircraft was hit by a strong crosswind, and it was already you know, powering down the runway. And the pilot lost control of it. And he ended up basically skidding it across the um, across the airfield, through a couple of jeeps, a couple of GMCs, almost hit a building, collapsed the landing gear, and um, and essentially wrote the aircraft off. So they had to um, get one of the spare aircraft, spare air crew, move all the paratroopers over to another aircraft, and have them take off and rejoin the formation uh, that was at that point circling above the airfield. So problems from, from the get-go. And then over Germany, the aircraft demonstrated a devastating inability to sustain anti-aircraft fire. So not including the aircraft that crashed on takeoff, the 313th operated 72 C-46s for Operation Varsity and lost 19, which is a huge amount of aircraft for one group to lose and there was a really big uh, a quite a hefty report made after Mar uh, sorry after varsity into the reasons why losses to a c46 were so heavy just to give you an idea there were 72 c46s flying that mission they lost 19 of them there was in excess of a thousand c47s flying and they lost just over 30 so if you work that out as percentages, they're completely incomparable. And they, so, they, so a, a big investigation was launched into, you know, you know, why did this aircraft not do so well, you know, on Operation Varsity? And there were a number of reasons. One of the key ones was that, you know, it had, it had what they called a figure of eight shaped fuselage, which meant it was, you know, if you, if you were looking at it nose on, it was kind of shaped like an eight. And it had a big open sort of void in the lower part of the fuselage. And when the fuel tanks were ruptured by anti-aircraft fire, the fuel would just pool in this lower portion of the fuselage. And they had exposed electrical points down there for the various, you know, lights and controls on the aircraft. And of course, that doesn't bode too well in terms of trying to avoid fire. Um, 
And because of the amount of fuel that would pull in the fuselage of these aircraft and also in cavities in the wings, when they were and they hit these exposed electrical points, they just caught fire and you know the results were, were absolutely devastating. And um in this report, there's a photograph of uh, the crash site of at least sort of ninety percent of the aircraft that were lost, and you know most of them went in really, really, really hard. And um, you know, crew were lost, or in one case, the paratroopers on board were also lost with the aircraft, with the exception of a, I think four or five who managed to throw themselves out of the door as it was um, as it was crashing. And um, I mentioned this again on Matt, on, the, on the podcast with Matt Bone, but. Um, in the post-war years, there was a film which I'm sure you're familiar with called Theirs is the Glory, which was a, a, a film about Market Garden from the 1st Airborne Division's perspective and uh, utilises an awful lot of footage from, you know, original, raw original footage from Market Garden. Um, but it also uses, interestingly enough, a lot of footage of C-46s being shot down during varsity. And the reason is because it's really, really harrowing horrible footage to watch but it may you know as bad as it sounds it makes for great you know cinematic footage if that makes sense you know it's it's you know the aircraft are going down with engines in flames wings in flames you know it, it makes for good footage and um, but what not a lot what not a lot of people realize is that a lot of the aircraft you see going in really really heavy in that film you know are actually c-46s that were filmed during operation varsity um which says an awful lot really about how well the mission went for the aircraft, and um, and after the report was was compiled, and after there had been various assessments on the aircraft's use, uh, Lieutenant General at the time Matthew Ridgway, who uh, was commanding officer of um, 18th Airborne Corps, essentially said that as long as he was involved in airborne missions in the U.S. Army, it would never be used again for deploying paratroopers in combat, and it never was, and in fact, its career as a aircraft for anything related to combat was very 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 short-lived in the u.s air force and it was superseded quite quickly other than combat missions uh, during the second world war what other roles did the troop carrier command play during the conflict um after the um normandy landings around about the 20th 21st of june they, they started to fly uh probably well, what I think is one of their most important jobs, which was air, medical air evacuation missions. So with the establishment of the ALGs in Normandy, the advanced landing grounds, they they began to fly supplies in to um, into these these bases. And, and generally speaking, um, they would they would try their very best never to fly a C-47 anywhere empty. Um, there was always a job it could be doing. So on the days when it flew, they would fly supplies into the ALGs. They would they would do that flight with a medical air evacuation nurse on board, whose job it would be the moment the cargo was unloaded would be to ready the aircraft for combat casualties, basically. Um, and the way it would work would would, would be that a, a medic from from a, from a from a ground unit from one of the army units that's in the area would come to the aircraft and brief the nurse on the nature of the casualties that are going to be um that are going to be um coming on board so that she can prepare the cabin appropriately so if, it, if they were all stretcher bound for example she could prepare the suspended stretches that are 
every C47 at the time had fitted on the inside, ready to go. Or alternatively, if they were if they if they could sit, then they would, you know, use the benches or let them sit on the floor. Um, but but generally, she she had to have a reasonable knowledge about what was, you know, what the nature of most of the, the casualties coming on board would be, and then they would fly them back to bases in the UK that were quite close to general hospitals, and then they'd obviously they'd be loaded onto ambulances, and taken away for um, further care. But they they were you know they were like angels. Um, some of the stuff we've read about them, you know, having quite a calming effect on the casualties on board the aircraft and, and not just Americans and British personnel or allied personnel, but also with the Germans. Um, you know, they, they seem like, um, you know, it seems like they were incredibly vital to keeping a lot of guys alive. So that was an important mission. Every wing had at least a couple uh, of uh, what, what they called meets or medical air evacuation transport squadrons attached to them that were based at various troop carrier airfields and they consisted mainly of flight nurses but also um, surgeons and doctors that, that were based at the airfield to treat uh, wounded personnel as they came back in um, so that was that was a very important role obviously the supplies they brought in were hugely important as well um, and of course there were um, sort of resupply missions aside from that so Operation Repulse in December 44 um, during the Battle of the Bulge and obviously the 101st Airborne Division being surrounded at Bastogne and in desperate need of supplies um, when the weather cleared the supplies were finally brought in by 9 Troop Carrier Command and they carried out a number of missions the only day they couldn't do from I think the 24th to the 28th was Christmas Day because weather was too bad. Um, they uh, they carried out a number of resupply missions, which were absolutely critical to uh, to the one hundred first maintaining their perimeter at Bastogne. And actually, uh, on a, on the flip side to the uh, to what we were saying earlier about the the, the troop carrier criticism um, from veterans of the one hundred first, anyone that saw them or experienced the resupply missions at Bastogne. Um, have nothing but positive stuff to say to say about them um, because they were flying resupply missions. They had to fly very low and very slow over an area that was riddled with some pretty tough German um, German units, and had an, uh, quite a few aircraft shot down. And one of the first witnessed these aircraft being shot down as well, which um, I think realistically was probably for a lot of them the first time they'd seen an aircraft go down in that way. And, Gave them a, a sense of, um, you know, of, of, of the dangers that really came with the job that they maybe hadn't really perceived before. Um, but um, but yeah, the one the, the nine troop carrier command also flew, flew supplies to the one hundred sixth infantry division as well, which is um, because it wasn't featured in Panda Brothers, isn't too uh, too too well heard of. But um, the supplies that they dropped to the the 106th were pretty vital as well. So um, they also fl flew um, supplies into, I'm having to try and remember this off the top of my head, elements of, I believe, the 10th Armoured Division who had been cut off um, in uh, during an engagement in 1945 and were very much at risk of being overrun. And they managed to um, establish a, a, a landing strip big enough to allow 
C-47s to land uh, and basically provide supplies to them. And it was an incredibly, incredibly risky mission, but it was carried out to the, to the, uh, to the letter, basically, and um, gave that, that armoured unit the supplies they needed to, um, to, to break out of their encirclement and rejoin the remainder of their division. So again, it was, um, it was pretty vital stuff. Um, towards the end of the war, um, one of the again the, one of the more important missions they had from uh, from certainly from the perspective of the, those that were benefiting from it was the repatriation of um, POWs. Um, so there were daily flights um, out to uh, out to the continent to pick up uh, POWs who had been um, liberated from the various POW camps and um, fly them back to the UK. And we've got lots of pictures of them from the collections that we've got for, for working on our books of, of POWs, all with, uh, as you can imagine, uh, smiles from ear to ear being returned back. So from a, 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 from a morale point of view um, and from a point of view of, uh, you know, those that were being taken back, it was uh, quite an important job. Obviously, it's been a very difficult year for many people uh, for what's going on in the world with COVID etc not being able to see people but it's been a very productive year for yourself hasn't it adam um yeah it has actually yeah um aside from doing my my normal day job which is working in security i've started a business with a friend of mine called john who's who's a, a, an officer in the raf it's currently based out in germany doing um as bizarre as it sounds coffee um and we are we're called the Warbird Coffee Company, and I, I, I don't suppose I really need to explain what our coffee's themed on. But we've 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 taken a bit of a unique um, unique approach to it in that um, we've created a number of collaborations with um, aircraft operators or aircraft owners, aircraft that are either currently flight wherever you are <coughs> being restored to flight, and. Um, yeah, we've created coffee almost in their name or products in their names or in the names of their aircraft. And um, a certain amount of proceeds from every bag sold goes towards the, uh, the, either the upkeep or the restoration of the aircraft. So um, an example is the um, Typhoon Preservation Group. We've got, a, we've got a product for them called Tiffy Tea, which is a, a nice, good old-fashioned English breakfast tea, which contributes towards the restoration of the typhoon, which is a great thing and i'm you know i'm sure i'm not you know I'm, I'm amongst many 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 people who are really really looking forward to seeing the uh the typhoon in in skies over england um but we don't always go for the um you know for the uh the big players you know the the, the big the, the big interest in aircraft we've we've got a collaboration with uh um with andrew goodall and his uh his t6 harvard wacky wabbit who um and we we consider you know we consider andrew's aircraft really 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 important actually in terms of um modern day warbird aviation because of course it's used as a platform for training tail drag pilots so um you know a lot of, a lot of guys that fly the warbirds that that might draw draw the punters in uh, are learning their learning their trade in in andrew's t6 and you know so we consider it to be a very important aircraft so we've got a a product which we appropriately called Wacky Wabbit, which um, uh, contributes to the upkeep of Andrew's aircraft, keeps it in the air, and hopefully will keep keep it there for future Warbird pilots to to train on. 
Thanks for listening. We hope you found it of interest. If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode on the World Station podcast on our social media channels. You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at World Nation, and also Instagram at World Nation HQ. And if you wish to help support the World Station podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash HQ, or support us at Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Nation. The links for both of these are also in the podcast bio below. Thank you very much for your support. Obviously, also a big thank you to Adam for taking the time to chat with us today about Troop Carry Command's experiences. Coming up next, we actually have something of an unexpected bonus episode for you in the form of a veteran interview. Reverend John Parker has kindly sent in an interview that his family did with their father about his experiences during the war. Douglas Parker ended up serving with the East Yorkshire Regiment, who landed on Saw Beach on D-Day, and his recollections of this and his wartime and post-war service with the Army will be out next Wednesday on the podcast. Anyhow, until next time, this is Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the Wellwoods Nation podcast. Thank you.